I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. It's an honor to be joined today by Dr. Sarah Tracy. Dr. Tracy is the Herberger Professor in the Hugh Downs School of Human Communication at Arizona State University. She's an award-winning teacher and researcher whose work focuses on emotion, identity, compassion, and work-life wellness. She's a national leader in qualitative research. For listeners unfamiliar with qualitative research, it's a way of knowing that involves storytelling. Qualitative researchers interview people about their experiences. They participate in their lives as they live them and sometimes take notes. And they even tell stories through photographs. Researchers like Dr. Tracy do qualitative research in order to understand and describe the human condition, to explore and solve problems. The second edition of Dr. Tracy's critically acclaimed book on qualitative methods is now available on Amazon and is connected to a YouTube channel called Get Your Qual On. Sarah, I find your work both inspired and inspiring. Today, we're talking about a recent article in Health Communication, an essay I believe has the capacity to help us all be more present in our relationships with others and and be more compassionate. Sarah, in thinking about today's greatest health risks in the U.S., it's not obesity or a lack of exercise. It's not drug abuse or safe sex. What you argue is one of the greatest threats is an epidemic of stress and loneliness. As you argue, people lack social connections. And when they lack social connections, they're at a much higher risk for premature death. Meanwhile, and this is an important meanwhile, the ability for people to compassionately connect with others is plummeting. plummeting. Although you identify many different factors that are connected to these health challenges, in this article, you focus on an over-reliance on social media. I'm, I'm really excited for listeners to join us as we talk about all of this and more. Sarah, thanks for your insightful article, and, and thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. It's great to be here, Lynn. Mm. Sarah, to start, um, communicating compassion is it's at the forefront of your work in in wide-ranging contexts, from prisons to school settings and and hospice and end-of-life care. Why are you drawn to the study and and the practice of compassion? Wow, that's that's a good question. Um, You know, I I guess I would say a couple things. First of all, my, my research for years was on the dark side of emotion in organization, things like workplace bullying and burnout and stress and emotional labor. And one of the things that I got clear on is that even if we solve or ameliorate some of those problems, it might move us to organizations that are 
you know, normal, um, but it doesn't move us to thriving. Mm. And so I really wanted to start studying more positive emotions. So that's, that's one of the reasons. There's a couple more as well. Um, another one is that, uh, you know, it is connected to my passion for qualitative research. As a qualitative researcher, as you said in the opening, we've got to be attuned to what other people are saying. And a big part of compassion is listening. Mm-hmm. And so is qualitative research, you know, like with the story, storytelling and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I was, you know, thinking, um, oddly enough, I feel like I've always been especially attuned to the suffering of other people. And this isn't always a great thing. You know? I can be in an airport and see the one person who is lost. And mm. I'm just compelled then to go, you know, even if I'm in a hurry to go someplace else to, to go help them. And I don't know if that's also, I like being um, useful and, and helpful and all of that, but like whether it's animals or, you know, people on a busy street or people in my family, if I see some sort of upset, um, well, I guess I just see upset in ways that maybe others don't. And so um, given that that's part of compassion, I think sometimes I look around and think, oh, gosh, you know, it's interesting that not all people are like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're, you're attuned to, you're aware of the darker side of the human condition and you're drawn to how do we respond to that, right? How can I how can I help this person? How can I be compassionate in this moment? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. So, Sarah, when you think about and and when you conceptualize compassion, I know you and your colleagues have developed a model, right? That that involves. Steps like recognizing and relating and reacting. Can you can you step back and just talk to us about how do you do compassion? How do you mm-hmm. understand compassion? Yeah, I think one of the main things to keep in mind is that it is slightly different from empathy. And a lot of people use those two words in, you know, to mean the same thing. And there, there are some similarities. One of the main things is first to just even be aware of somebody else's upset or suffering. And that means looking around and recognizing it and being able to see it as, oh, this person is upset. And there, it's not necessarily um, an upset of anger or violence, but there's some sort of suffering there. So that's the first step, just seeing it. The second step uh, is what my colleagues and I call relating. Other people um, have called it something slightly different, but relating the way we meet it is that we are listening to what is said and also what is not said. Also, it's sharing our own upsets, not in a way to compete with somebody else's upsets. That's not a way to be compassionate, but to in a way that might help create connection. And that requires some vulnerability on our own part. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then that third part, and this is the part that sets it uh, away from empathy, is reacting. Other people have called this responding. And this is not just noticing it, being with the other person in their upset, but it's stepping in and doing something. And that doing something could be a number of things. It could be providing information. It could be, you know, getting somebody a glass of water. 
It could be, you know, helping them um, get unlost if they mm-hmm. are lost in the airport. And then even it could be strategically noticing that they need to be left alone. So this sort of, but it's a mindful action that is going to be helpful. And that action, this, you know, usually it comes in that order, the recognizing suffering, then the relating, and then the reacting. But we actually put parents around the word re and then acting. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Because the action can come first. Sometimes it's only through helping other people that we see that they're suffering, you know, that we might have to be with them in order to understand that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily a linear process. Um, it's much more cyclical. Right, right. Do you see how that might happen, like how you could act first and then? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I love that notion of kind of mindful action, that it's that that there's also... Um, whether that's in retrospect or you start out with this recognition, right, of suffering, that there's there's this mindfulness, this presence um, with another person, right, and and you're relating with that other person who's in the midst of vulnerability, but but there, there's a mindfulness involved with that. Yeah, because sometimes the best thing to do is to leave somebody alone. Mm-hmm. Like there are times in one of my uh, past students, and now colleague Debbie Way's hospice research, where the nurses were able to see that a certain patient, that the best action was to allow them to kind of sit in peace. Mm-hmm. I-, I experience this on a regular basis with my teenage daughter. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yes, yes. So there are moments when I I can just sense, right, she needs to work through this. And if I try to enter in, that that might be me trying to solve a problem rather than her, right, working through that on her own and drawing on her own resources. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's a great example. Right. Oh, my gosh. So what I find really interesting, Sarah, in your article, is you talk about how an increased use in social media, right, and in mediated communication, whether that's Instagram or Facebook and online communities, that that's connected to, in some ways, increased difficulty in communicating compassion with others, in recognizing, in relating, in, in what you talked about, that mindful reacting and that mindful acting. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the connection you see there between the unintended consequences of this increasing reliance on social media Mm -hmm. and then our capacity for compassion. Yeah, sure. One of the things I first would say is I am just struck by a lot of different things that are happening in the world right now. And when I say I've been struck, I kind of mean it in this way that it's kind of hit me upside the head. And um, the same kinds of things could hit other people in different ways. But I just am struck that there are all these different types of things going on that lead me to believe that there is a connection between social media use and compassion. And it's important to note that I haven't done 
causative research to link these things. But just a couple different things that strike me is, as you said in the opening, we have this epidemic of stress and loneliness, which some say is bigger than the health risks um, of obesity or lack of exercise or drug use. And people are spending more and more time with mediated communication and not with embodied other communication. Um, meanwhile, we see like decreased empathy among students. One study indicated a 40% decline of empathy among college students in the past three decades. Uh, we also see worse communication um, with medical providers. Uh, we, mm -hmm. you know, when you go see a medical provider and this, you know, this is not my research. I'm just been reading about it and also my own anecdotal evidence. And, and you've done a lot of work with medical providers. So you probably have mm -hmm. an idea on this as well, but they're focused on electronic medical record monitors. And the research that I've read shows that, um, that helps with the information transfer. But when we're not focused on other people's nonverbals, for instance, we're unable to see these sort of micro facial expressions of suffering and upset. And so, you know, that's that's another thing. And probably one of the biggest issues um, that I see is uh, social comparison. Mm. I've been teaching a happiness class for years and social comparison is a happiness killer when we compare ourselves to others. Um, it just, it really hurts us. And, you know, when you and I were young, it was maybe comparing ourselves with the uh, characters on, on Friends or, you know, in <laughs> Seventeen Magazine or something like that. And that was bad enough. But now it's just these people that you think you know, your friends and family, but they're posting these photoshopped lives and all the bright spots of, of their day. And, you know, one research study said that 48% of teens who spend five or more hours a day on their phones are more likely to think about and plan for suicide. Mm. You know, so there's just all of these different things that are happening that strike me that we need to start looking critically and mindfully at our use of social media and how it is affecting our ability to interact and be with other people. Mm-hmm. Mercy. Uh, social comparison as a happiness killer. That, yeah. That's that's profound, right? And and hits me in the gut. Um, I, I want to pull out a quote from your article that really speaks to to social comparison as as a happiness killer. You write on social media, people are more likely to encounter photoshopped pictures and staged lives, the script, the cleaned up version, the edited, the idealized, the envy producing. And if they're lucky, every so often they'll see glimpses of vulnerability. It's just powerful writing, powerful reflection on the state of kind of what we generally encounter right, in our mm -hmm. mediated lives. So what's what's interesting to me is then how you connect that to um, our capacity to respond to suffering and what mm -hmm. you what you argue is you believe that it's negatively impacting right our ability to to be compassionate with others and to be there um, in moments of their vulnerability, to recognize it, and to be mindful in how we act. 
town. I mean, it's the thing is, is that most suffering is hidden on social media. You know, we don't post you know, the positive emojis, the little heart faces, you know, and the little happy faces are used much more than negative faces. So we just literally do not use the same, even when we have emoticons or emojis to use, we don't post that. We don't, um, we don't regularly post about the worst part of our days. Um, in some ways, probably because we don't want to depress our family and friends. But then we get this idea that everybody's life is better than ours. So that leads to the social comparison. But it also makes it it masks that first central part of compassion. It just even masks the suffering. We just don't even see it. Mm-hmm. And then if we do see it, we can on in mediated spaces, we can switch the channel. We can click through. We can turn the page. Um, I think of that uh, Sarah McLaughlin commercial with the abused animals. You know, that's just heart wrenching, and I, it's that sort of thing. If you stick with it, yeah, you can see the suffering, but it is a lot easier to click through that than if somebody is upset right in front of us. And I guess one other thing I would say is that it's hard to know how. So let's say, okay, so first thing. You just don't see the suffering as much. And would you say that's the case on your social media feed as well, that you don't see a lot of suffering? Yeah, absolutely. And when you do, um, it, it you don't often experience the backstory, right? You mm-hmm. see a, you see the superficial. Um, and, and oftentimes, you don't take time to go beyond the GoFundMe, right? Or how right. can I provide immediate response? And at the end of the day, emojis just don't have the same effect as <laughs> as looking another person in the eye, right? Yeah. They don't. Um, yeah. So I absolutely agree, Sarah. Yeah. There's just, um, there's a few people, there's a few courageous people on my Facebook feed who share their mental health issues, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, when it, when these people first did this, it was shocking to me. And now I see what a gift they are to so many people because other people are able to go in and say, oh, yeah, me too. But it takes so much courage um, to do that. And there's a lot of risk involved, you know, for employers who are searching through old social media feeds and so on. So we just don't see it. And then, as you said, it's hard to know how to relate mm-hmm. when somebody does put their suffering up there. You know, when I, I think the most suffering I see on my Facebook feed is when people talk about their um animals or family members who have passed away mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. seems to be a way but when they do it's hard to know how to respond you know how do we you in a in a small little message convey that we're there you know I think of when I have been really upset it's done through eye contact or through a hand on a shoulder or a heartfelt hug and so connecting in that way is is very difficult. Some people who are super articulate are able to do it, but most of us are at a loss for how to how to respond to suffering when it's just through words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's really interesting to think about the relationship between this increase in mediated communication and mediated relationships, right? Yeah. That involve less nonverbal communication, 
right? Mm -hmm. And less direct listening and hearing and processing. What happens then when people are in face-to-face situations and are required to kind of be present or or they're a witness to, to someone in the midst of suffering? How does that impact them? Yeah. Well, I can say what I have seen and some and some general trends. Like I said, that one study with the college students says that college students' empathy has decreased. Uh, we also see uh, there's more Americans today seeking medical help for social anxiety than mm-hmm. ever before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I believe it that there's got to be some sort of connection here in terms of the social anxiety of having to interact in a spontaneous, synchronous way when we don't have practice in it. You know, as as communication scholars, we know that good communication comes through practice. It's a learned skill. People who are born um, can learn how to be a good public speaker or or not learn that skill. It's not like you are born a good public speaker or not. And in the same way, conversation and listening and connection skills are skills that are learned over time. They're practiced. They're things that we do uh, with our parents playing peekaboo when we're young and, and so on. And when we have years fewer practice, it's no wonder that we have more anxiety when we are called on to have these synchronous conversations. You know, we have young people who, um, according to Sherry Turkle, who are afraid to engage in courting behavior in in real time. They can do their text messaging back and forth to their um, potential suitor and have their friends chime in on the best way to respond and what emoji to use and and also the timing of texts and so on. And certainly there's always, all of us have done practice that way, but I think it's just getting more and more so that we are used to being able to really control our communication. And that brings us some um, happiness, you know, control is good. And there, there's some spontaneity that's gone. And I think I said this at the beginning, that the happiest people in the world are those that are most social. And when I say social, I mean embodied sociality where you see each other's um, crinkle of the eyes and smell each other's, I don't know, sweat after the soccer game. And and so it's the social anxiety and also, I think, a decreased happiness leading to some of that loneliness we were talking about earlier. I want to pick up on a, a concept that you've used a couple times now, embodied communication. Mm-hmm. And this is something in your article that that you argue we're at a defining moment in our discipline of communication and that we need to kind of really be engaging in scholarship that results in an uptake of, of what you call embodied face-to-face communication and a mm-hmm. decrease in, in mediated communication. But most of our listeners are probably unfamiliar with what that means, what embodied communication really means. Can you talk to us about that, unpack that? Yeah, sure. I, you know, and I'm not sure if that is the term I eventually want to land on or not, but what I'm using it to mean right now is face-to-face spontaneous interaction. And even though this isn't embodied, I do think 
we are able to enter into the mental world of other people. It's this concept called mentalizing. When we we are better able to do that when we can hear tone of voice and also see facial expression. And so those sort of things can be done on the telephone and they also can be done in things like uh, video conferencing, Skype, and maybe someday we'll have holograms, probably not too far in the future, uh, be able to interact with people that way. So that might be a substitute. It's still not going to give us the smell of someone. Yeah. That's what I mean by embodied. Okay. And so for you, you really believe that, that this is a critical juncture. And as, as a profession, communication teachers ought to be really focused on developing conversational skills Am I getting that right? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, it used to be in the 80s that we had all these computer-mediated communication classes. And my hope is that conversation classes become as ubiquitous as computer-mediated communication classes were in the 1980s. You know, we used to have, we knew that we didn't know how to do computer-mediated communication. And so we had to teach people and learn special skills. And at this point, I think students would benefit and actually flock to classes that are based on conversation, mm. things as easy as making requests. You know, I have a, a past honor student who I adore who said she never orders pizza from a place where she has to talk to somebody about it. She just said it online. And certainly I can understand there's times talking to people on the phone can be very annoying. <laughs> um, but uh, just to have those skills and the confidence and not be paralyzed by anxiety about having to do something like ask somebody in real time for a product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, this goes back to what you were saying about the skills that it takes to when we craft messages and when we interact with others to be able to do that in ways that are responsive to the context at hand, right, that are audience specific. These are things that you learn about interpersonal communication and are getting lost and minimized um, by a, a world in which increasingly we're immersed in um, mediated contexts. Yeah. Well, what what do you think about this idea, Lynn, of doing conversation classes? Do you think that that's something, when you think about your own students or people around you, do you think that that's something that they would benefit in or would they be insulted by something like that or do you have thoughts on that? You know, I think it's a fabulous idea. And one of the things that, and I hope I hope listeners will read your article. Um, as a reminder to listeners, Health Communication and its publisher, Taylor and Francis, are making all of these articles accessible for free. So I hope I hope people will download your essay and read it. But one of the things you do towards the end is you come full circle and say, I don't want to create a false um, binary or an either or, like face-to-face -face communication is good and mediated communication is bad, right? Instead, you argue, right, we need to understand how all of those enable us and constrain us in different ways. And there are some real limits of unchecked mediated communication. So A, I appreciate that. And I think that in our curriculum and in our 
um, work with our students alongside social media analytics courses and media literacy. And, and those are important, right? Those are important skills and, and knowledge sets for many of our students. Mm-hmm. But we can't neglect what I think has always been the heart of our discipline. And, and that's how we can foster meaningful relationships with other humans, right? And how we make meaning with other people in and through communication. And I think we need to kind of come back to some of those roots and, and embrace that. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're at a time where we need it in our culture. So I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I feel like even though maybe ostensibly it's been at the heart of our discipline, it has become, or it has been such an assumed skill that it's something that it does take some doing for us to think, oh my gosh, wow. You know, how do we go beyond, um, thinking about like, oh, of course, everybody knows how to do this. You know, the old joke with communication majors is like, really, you need to take a major in order to communicate. And I think that our behavior and our discipline in our behavior in this discipline is more relevant now than ever. Mm -hmm. I think that people are starting to realize like, oh, yeah, actually, (laughs) we do need to have some classes on how how to connect with people, how to listen, how to interact. And that the students that I've seen are are hungry for this. I've taught some classes that are really focused on not people necessarily knowing about certain theories. They certainly learn those things, but it's about going out in the world and trying and practicing things like making requests and and, uh, savoring a a conversation and listening in order to really get somebody and then coming back and talking about their breakthroughs and their breakdowns. Like the first time we try some of this stuff, it it doesn't always go well. Mm -hmm, mm You know, I think it needs to happen long before students reach us in in college classrooms. When our kids in our elementary schools can no longer, right, generally understand what a bullying behavior is like, right? Mm -hmm. We need to intervene earlier. We we need to um, be able to help them cultivate a capacity to recognize Right and mm-hmm. and to respond and and react, right mm-hmm. in, in compassionate ways. I wonder if it is going to be young people eventually who really, really push this whole idea forward. You know, young people who have parents that maybe they see who are really connected to their social media and say, you know what, I'm not going to be like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that therein lies hope for me. Right. <laughs> when I've I've seen uh, teenagers who need to be away from social media because they're at a camp for two weeks or mm. they're lifeguarding and they that that's prohibited. Right. To, to see how that then shifts their perspective, I think, is really powerful. It's powerful for them. It's powerful for their family members and people around them. Um, so I think that that self-awareness on their part, they're our future right? They're the people who are going to be, to really ask us, right? We, yeah. we want to shift. We want to change this. Yeah. Well, there was one of the things too, I said uh, near the end of my essay is that it's going to take young people in order, you know, for 
some of this focus on conversation to really be revived. I'm a Gen Xer and a wag of a finger from me, even if it's well-intentioned, you know, and even though, you know, I, I realize like I'm not trying to make social media a demon and I'm not trying to make this a moral issue. I'm really trying to just kind of point out the workability of, of some of our practices and become a little bit mindful of them. But um, it's only going to, a voice from my generation is only going to have so much power. Hi, folks. Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Sarah Tracy about the health epidemic of stress and loneliness in the U.S. and its connection to Americans' over-reliance on social media. If you'd like to read some of Sarah's work, I encourage you to go to the Defining Moments Facebook page at dmpodcastwoub. There's a link to the article we've been discussing. Also, the second edition of Sarah's critically acclaimed book on qualitative research methods is now available on Amazon. The book is connected to her YouTube channel, Get Your Qual On. I have links to all of these resources and more on the Defining Moments Facebook page at dmpodcastwoub. Okay, back to our conversation. So you've done really interesting things at Arizona State with colleagues that go beyond the classroom, right? Um, And they're what I consider to be kind of experiential activities, experiential learning by doing, right? And and practicing some of these, um, what some people would consider soft skills, and I'm not sure that metaphor really fully captures the value of of these skills in, in navigating our world. But you you talk about a couple of these practices in your article. One of them is is the Story Scope project. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that you can talk to us a little bit about what this is. Yeah, so this project was founded by one of our master's alumni, John Jeanette, and one of our lecturers, Jennifer Lindy. And it is a program that brings together people from varied walks of lives. And it's called StoryScope. A certain topic is chosen for each session. And it's a very general topic. It could be something like change, for instance. And in the evening, the participants draw their chairs into a circle. That's the story circle. And they just share brief stories, like one or two minutes. And they have like a little timer related to the night's topic. And because it includes various people um, from all different walks of life, it can create this connection with those with whom we usually wouldn't interact with people we might actually feel anxious with or be wary of. And we learn things through the story circle that might draw us together and apart. And so it's it's one of those things that can build empathy. And it's also, like I said, this a, a, a moment of embodied communication where we can see the facial expressions and the uncertainties and what people have to say and their excitement and so on. Hmm. We've done something similar at our medical school at Ohio University. 
It's called Behind the White Coat. And it's just an evening where med students come together and they they take turns sharing stories about their first-year experiences and Mm -hmm. and sometimes about life experiences prior to med school that shape how they experience that professional um, socialization that happens in med school. And they've been really profound moments for participants and and for those who bear witness to the stories that are shared. Yeah. What kind of things do you see? You know, in in many cases, the people who are courageous enough to share stories talk about what it's like to to grow up in a holler of Appalachia, which is not very, mm-hmm. you know, far from where we're at. And this might be a community where the only access to healthcare is a mobile clinic, right? Mm-hmm. And how this experience has profoundly shaped, right, the imposter phenomenon they might experience wow. in that first year of medical school, um, but also reinforces their commitment to when they're done practicing in a rural or underserved region, right? Mm-hmm. That these are formative life experiences that shape how how they enter into a setting that is at once foreign and then reaffirms their commitment to, I want to go back. I want to give back. I want to make this mm-hmm. more possible for others. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and it does something for the, you know, for the storyteller and also for the listeners where, you know, when we see people, when we see people tell their story, there's there's just this sort of being able to enter into their world and see how it is. Even if we wouldn't see the world in the same way as they would, we we get how it is or why it is that they would see the world that way. And that's mm-hmm. that key part of relating of compassion. Mm-hmm. It's harder to dismiss a person when when they've shared a a part of their life from Mm -hmm. a heartfelt place. It's just harder to dismiss them and their humanity. And I think we need that now more than ever, right? Where we also are in the midst of polarized discourses. So to be able to kind of stand amidst difference and um, bear witness to difference and Mm -hmm be more comfortable with difference um, and and being able to, in, in safe places, have dialogue about those different opinions, right? Yeah. And it's, it, you, relatedly, you're also doing some projects at, at Arizona State that deal with that civil dialogue. And, and I suspect that's both similar to and different from the StoryScope project. Yeah, you know, it's funny, civil dialogue started first, and then it moved to story scope. And I think they both had the same goals was to allow people to better understand diverse points of view. And they do it in different ways. So story scope really starts with a commonality, like, okay, everybody's going to tell a story about change. The civil dialogue, on the other hand, and it was also started, and there's a great book on civil dialogue, if anybody is interested, by my colleagues, John Jeanette, Clark Olson, and Jennifer Lindy. It's called Hot Topics, Cool Heads. And um, what this project does is it brings together people to purposely discuss a provocative statement. 
So a trained facilitator, and we actually have uh, a way to have people get trained in civil dialogue at ASU as a certification. A trained facilitator reveals a controversial statement that will generate a range of opinions. So for instance, let's you know say our controversial statement could be something like students should not be allowed to use mobile phones in the classroom ever. All right. So that would be controversial. Uh, obviously, people would have a, a range of opinions on that. And then they'll ask five participants from the bigger audience to take a stand about the statement. And there's five chairs at the front of the group that and they, the chairs say on them um, strongly agree, agree, you know, in between disagree, disagree strongly. And, and we get one person to sit in each of the seats. And then with the help of the facilitator and from, you know, with the spectating audience as well, the participants then practice talking civilly and vulnerably through their opinions and viewpoints, like why it is that they took that seat. And then they do some interaction with the audience. And at the end, they share how or whether the dialogue has modified their viewpoints, if at all. Mm, and some mm. the dialogue doesn't change their viewpoint at all. But sometimes people kind of, you know, move a little bit due to the dialogue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That example, like really resonates with me, the use of students' mobile phones in classrooms, because I still struggle with that. Um, as, as a teacher, as a lifelong learner, I had mm-hmm. this really profound experience last year, Sarah, right before mm-hmm. I, I went on a sabbatical. I was teaching a, a class, and I had brought in a clip from CNN, and it was narrated by Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Mm-hmm. And the clip was it was on a fairly controversial use of what's called safe bathrooms to address the opioid uh, addiction and and the increasing number of deaths that are due to addiction. And safe bathrooms um, have resources available in case people overdose, they can Uh. be brought back to life. Hence the controversy. So I had brought this clip in to the class, and we were starting class with this mediated story. And immediately, students started telling personal stories, right? They In in our area, it's kind of the center Mm -hmm. of, of the opioid crisis in the U.S. And I vividly remember, right, one of my students saying, I'm from Portsmouth, and it's known as Portsmouth. And, you know, my cousin overdosed and my cousin's cousin overdosed. Other story, other students started sharing, right, stories where in a classroom, you you just listen, right, because mm-hmm. it's a space for them to respond emotionally. Right. And we'll get to a place where we can engage that theoretically, but they were, they were engaging emotionally. And yeah. in the corner of my eye, I could see one of my students, um, Sam, in the back. And he was clearly on his cell phone. And Sarah, um, I I think the Holy Spirit was with me that day because (laughs) I was really close. I was so close to to saying something like, Sam, you need to get off Facebook, right? You need to get off Instagram because we just need to be present, right? Talk about Mm -hmm. compassion, like being being here in this moment, 
right? Realizing that it's a moment that we need to be present for. And and I didn't, right? The conversation kept going. I tried not to give Sam too much of my attention. All of a sudden, Sarah, Sam raised his hand and he said, I've been texting with my sister and she's mm-hmm. an ER nurse in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And last night, she said there were five overdose cases. And mm-hmm. those are five lives that could have been saved had safe bathrooms been available for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. <laughs> And then he went on to talk about how I just looked this up and this is not atypical. This happens all the time. And mm-hmm. so I, in retrospect, I think about a generation, right, of digital natives and we're digital immigrants, right? Yeah. 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 And yeah. <laughs> how they relate in different ways. And, and Sam was present in the conversation was mm-hmm. he listening and hearing as much as he could have had he not mm-hmm. also been communicating with his sister? Probably not. But right, what he did offer when he in- entered into conversation and engaged with us about this topic was really quite meaningful and, mm-hmm. and profound in its own way. And a contribution to the conversation that was going on in the classroom, too. It was. It was a contribution. And it was a note to myself about sometimes the stories that we have about uh-huh. others' actions. <laughs> and, you know, on any other day, Sam might have been ordering something on Amazon, right? But he right. wasn't, right? Yeah. Um, yeah and true. so that's yeah. on me. That was the script that, mm-hmm. that I had in my head. But it, yeah. I, it's a complicated set of dilemmas for teachers. I don't, yeah. I, I don't see easy answers. Yeah. Yeah, I struggle with that as well. And as I said in the essay, you know, I don't see social media or use of cell phones or whatever as a problem to be solved. It's not something that, I, you know, like I said, it's not a moral issue. It's not about good or bad. It's just this workability. And I think it's a tension to be managed. We're not, you know, I, I am not a fan of, you know, or, you know, some sort of person who thinks we should get rid of all technology. It does so many great things for us. And, you know, I think of my elderly father, who I just saw a couple of days ago, and, you know, it is fantastic that he and I are able to interact on Facebook and on Skype and so on, because he's not able to get out as much anymore and so on. And I think the thing is, is and, and this goes back to something I said at the beginning of our discussion, is being mindful about it and, and intentional and, you know, we can either have social media or social media can have us, you know, mm, and mm. right now there's some of us that are, are being, you know, like we're not in the driver's seat. And there is research that shows, for instance, that we um, do get some dopamine hits, which are addictive when there are buzzes and beeps and so on. I try to turn off a lot of that um, on my own computer and cell phone because they're almost irresistible. It's, it's kind of like a, a gambling addiction almost, but it doesn't create the happiness um, hormone serotonin. So dopamine is a sort of quick hit compared to um, you know, the, the longer lasting happiness feelings. And so I think it's just, it's being aware of the limitations of what technology can provide for us 
and making mindful choices so that we are the one in the driver's seat. And there might be times, for instance, in the classroom where it's like all cell phones away and gone and so on. And then, okay, this is a time when they can be out. I'm encouraging people to interact and so on. You know, the thing that I get worried about is when somebody is uh, surfing the internet, for instance, or on Facebook, it not only affects them in the classroom, but five or six other people around them. So mm -hmm. it's not just an individual thing either. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that both in our conversation today and, and in your essay, you offer a really nuanced um, and careful perspective that emphasizes both a desire to motivate conversation, right, and and not just slam uh, mediated mm -hmm. communication, right. Um, there's there's one um, passage from your essay. I highlighted it. I started it. Um, when I reread it, I circled it again. I want to read it for our audience who who hasn't read your essay yet. You say a person can be struck by the need for increased embodied communication while simultaneously embracing the benefits technology provides. Mediate communication can provide a relational lifeline, for example, to those who are homebound or geographically removed, right? Which is what you were talking about with your dad, right? And being able yeah. to connect with him in ways that you might not otherwise. Um, as we wrap up our conversation, Sarah, I would, I would love to to just hear about how some of your um, initiatives that you've been involved with—the Story Scope, the Civil Dialogue, um, your ongoing research about communicating compassion—how mm -hmm. has that transformed you as a person? Wow. Well, you know. It's one of those things that I have to walk the talk. If I am teaching, well, I don't have to. I, I guess I would say I choose to. And it's a continual practice for myself. It, when we're talking about skills-based learning or what my colleagues and I have called an opt-in approach and ontological learning, uh, learning to be or act in a certain way and not just know something, mm. we can't just learn it and then be good at it. Like I can learn a certain theory and know that theory forever, but for me to actually be able to enact gratitude or to enact a way of being compassionate or a way of being a leader, you know, those are all things that are our daily practices. And it's kind of like exercise. It's not enough to know that exercise is good for me. It's not enough to know that um, that listening is something that is going to bring me closer to my loved ones or to my community members. It's the daily practices of putting myself in a space where I might be listening to something that I may not necessarily agree with and and consistently practicing those skills along with my students. And yeah, I have breakdowns as well. And so part of part of doing this kind of learning is I think it, it takes some courage um, because it is 
sometimes putting ourselves in situations where we're not expert and then the continual practice and then you know being compassionate with ourselves as well <laughs> along the way and, and not beating ourselves up if we don't do it perfectly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Come practice with me. <laughs> right? Um, Sarah, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, for those of you who, who've been listening, we really appreciate uh, your presence. Defining Moments is made possible by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. On our Facebook page, I'll provide links to some of Sarah's written work, including the article we've talked about today. Remember, as I shared earlier, you can order the second edition of her book, Qualitative Research Methods, on Amazon, and watch her YouTube channel, Get Your Qual On. We will have links to all of this and more on the Defining Moments Facebook page at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. Go in peace and, and love one another. <laughs>